You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. History records and remembers what people did, the actions they took, and the effects those actions caused. Now, that seems like a pretty obvious statement, but uh, what I want to talk about is when what someone chooses not to do is just as important as what they actually do. Now, this isn't going to be an alternate history show, but I I did write a short story based on this exact same idea, and, and that is for George McClellan, His most important contribution to American history very well may be something that he chose not to do. When General McClellan was removed from command in the fall of 1862, the Lincoln administration was widely viewed as mishandling the war. Uh, McClellan was a divisive, though popular figure, and he was receiving Uh, more than a few calls to march the Army of the Potomac on Washington and take over control of the government. And that suggestion was repeated by by quite a few officers and men within the Army of the Potomac uh, when word got out of McClellan's removal. And I think it's fair to say that at at this point, uh, more than at any other time in the history of the United States, the stage was set for a military coup. All the pieces were in place except one. You had a nation in turmoil, a public that was beginning to turn on the government. You had a charismatic military leader at odds with the civilian authorities. But that military leader, beloved by his men and dubbed the young Napoleon by the press, was simply unwilling to install himself as dictator. And that's because when the recently removed McClellan heard the calls uh, of the soldiers to lead them to Washington, He dismissed them out of hand. He didn't consider it for a moment. Now, whether he could have, you know, actually been successful had he tried is highly questionable. But even so, as as much as he disliked the Lincoln administration, he didn't give the idea one second thought. And I say that is to his credit, probably uh, just as much as anything he ever did. And and I know that seems like uh, small praise or, or maybe a little strange to, to give someone credit for choosing not to stage a military coup. Uh, but think about it. I mean, uh, the list of people who have, have ever had to resist that temptation, especially in American history, is exceedingly small. And, and it's not that far-fetched of an idea. I mean, General Joseph Hooker, um, who would succeed McClellan's successor as commander of the Army of the Potomac, uh, he called for a military dictator. But... As we said, McClellan didn't entertain the idea for a heartbeat. So I guess 
there's no need to really take this train of thought any further, but um, just something I thought was, you know, was worth consideration. So last time we left off at the end of the Seven Days Battles in the spring of 1862, McClellan had concocted an ambitious plan to move the army by water to the Virginia Peninsula and then creep northwest to take Richmond by siege. And things started out well, but when Robert E. Lee took the fight to McClellan, he backed down and retreated to the safety of the Union gunboats on the James River. His plan was working, but when things started to get bloody, Mack was unwilling to take the necessary risks. He was too risk-averse to stand toe-to-toe and slug it out with a, uh, you know, a brawler like Lee. As Gideon Wells put it, McClellan, quote, wishes to outgeneral the rebels, but not to kill and destroy them, end quote. Uh, he was a student of the old-school, refined European style of fighting, and he was repulsed by the idea of total war, as advocated by Stonewall Jackson and later by Generals Grant and Sherman. And the combined rejection of total war, along with his refusal to take risks, left him as an ineffectual battlefield commander. Fitzhugh Lee, the nephew of the man who chased McClellan away from Richmond, uh, offered this tactful uh, yet incisive critique of McClellan, which I think explains the failure on the peninsula pretty well. Fitzhugh Lee says, quote, McClellan was always and everywhere a gentleman. He believed in fighting war in a Christian and humane manner. He had strategic, but not tactical, ability. Risks have to be taken when battle is joined, but he never took them. Welcome to Portraits of Blue and Gray. This is the third and final installment in our series on George McClellan. And I know I said last time that I was planning to start doing shorter shows, but uh, this one ended up getting long on me. Uh, I just didn't want to stretch the McClellan series into more than three parts. And there was a lot of good stuff that uh, I just didn't want to leave out. I'm planning for our next show to be, uh, at first, for Portraits of Blue and Gray, a a one-parter. I guess we'll see if I can keep it brief enough for that. Uh, As always, thank you to all of you who support the show. If you'd like to contact us, you can email the show at blueandgraypodcast at gmail.com, gray with an E. I love getting uh, listener emails, so don't be shy. And as always, thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. At the end of the Seven Days Battles, and after his much derided change of base, General George McClellan found himself stuck on the James River in something of a stalemate. The Union position with the powerful gunboats uh, protecting the army, was too strong for the rebels to attack. But McClellan no longer had access to the railways that he needed to move his big guns against Richmond. So the old plan uh, of creeping up the peninsula to siege the rebel capital was more or less unworkable. But Mack was not ready to give up. He began gathering up ferries and pontoons for a new attack plan that he had been working out. The idea was to cross over to the south side of the James and launch a rapid surprise attack on Petersburg, which was a railroad hub to the south of Richmond, where most of the uh, lines supplying Richmond passed through. So he would hold Petersburg and dig in, thereby forcing Robert E. Lee to either attack his strong position or allow Richmond to be choked out. Now, if this plan sounds familiar, then you've been paying attention because 
The plan McClellan had in mind was very similar to the plan that U.S. Grant would eventually use to end the war a couple years later. On July 25, 1862, McClellan met with General Henry Halleck, by then the General-in-Chief, and pitched his plan to get at Richmond through Petersburg. Halleck told him that he'd pass, pass along the plan to Secretary of War Stanton, but that he intended to advise against it. It was just too risky. Stanton agreed with Halleck's assessment, and that was the end of George McClellan's Petersburg plan. He still at least pretended that he wanted to go uh, on the attack again, though, and he continued his uh, by-then tiresome requests for more men. If only he could get 30,000, 40,000, a million more men, he could resume the offensive. Halleck would only promise 20,000, and if that wasn't enough, they were all going to have to move out of the peninsula. When Halleck reported Mack's request for more men to Lincoln, the president said, quote, If by some magic I could reinforce McClellan with 100,000 troops today, little Mack would be delighted and would promise to capture Richmond tomorrow. But when tomorrow came, he would report the enemy's strength at 400,000 and announce that he could not advance until he got another 100,000 reinforcements, unquote. So while Lincoln and Halleck dubiously weighed Mack's requests for more men, uh, in the meantime, McClellan made some important changes to the Army of the Potomac. Most notably, regulars took over for political appointees in uh, several key positions. Mack didn't trust the politicians turned generals. Uh, he, he noted, quote, The most useless thing imaginable is one of those highly educated civilians. It takes them a long time to learn that they know nothing, unquote. And he also made what seems to be a, a smart suggestion for adding in new volunteers a, as they streamed in. Uh, the practice in use was that new regiments were formed with new recruits, and then the new recruits were, uh, were added to the army. Mack recommended that uh, the new recruits instead be used to fill out depleted regiments that were already in existence. So that way you keep your regiment size relatively uniform, and more importantly, uh, the green volunteers get to learn beside the veterans who already know what they're doing. It makes pretty good sense to me, right? From a military's perspective, of course, it makes perfect sense, but not politically. You see, the way most regiments were outfitted was that some local politician or civic leader would recruit enough men uh, from around the town or the county to form a new regiment, and then they'd all volunteer together. So you had neighbors serving alongside one another. But if you just stick all these new recruits into existing regiments, there's no opportunity, you know, to reward the local politician or businessman who, who raised the regiment by making him a colonel or a brigadier general or whatever. So, you know, what's his incentive to go through the trouble? As it turns out, from Mac's perspective, at least, the, the question was academic because those new recruits uh, weren't coming to him anymore anyway, uh, no matter how many times he asked for them. You see, the War Department, frustrated with McClellan's reticence, had decided to form a new army in the East, the Army of Virginia. It was comprised of men who had fought under Banks in the Shenandoah Valley, um, some that had been in Washington's defenses, along with some, some green regiments. And it was commanded by General John Pope. Pope had seen some success out West, and he thought very highly of himself as a result. And due in part to... Uh, McClellan's proclamations of hundreds of thousands of rebels gathered in Richmond, General-in-Chief Halleck decided 
that it was high time that the Union Eastern forces be consolidated. If Lee had as many men as McClellan said, keeping McClellan's and Pope's armies separated was a serious strategic mistake. And that didn't mean that Pope's new army was going to be joining the Army of the Potomac under Max command on the peninsula, uh, notwithstanding representations to McClellan uh, to the contrary. No, Halleck on August 3rd directed McClellan to begin preparations for the withdrawal of his army and the trip north to join Pope closer to Washington. Mack told Halleck that the news, quote, caused me the greatest pain I have ever experienced, unquote. And he lodged a strenuous protest, saying, quote, Our true policy is to reinforce this army by every available means and throw it against Richmond. Should it be determined to withdraw it, I shall look upon our cause as lost, end quote. Uh, he noted the certain demoralization of this army, which would ensue, and argued that giving up the advantage derived from the water transport and the powerful gunboats was a mistake. It was his duty, he pleaded, to urge in the strongest terms afforded by our language that this order be rescinded. Here, directly in front of the army, is the heart of the rebellion. It is here that our resources should be collected to strike the blow which will determine the fate of the nation. Matters not what partial reverses we may meet with elsewhere. Here is the true defense of Washington. It is here, on the banks of the James, that the fate of the Union should be decided. End quote. But, notwithstanding Max pleading, Halleck had already made up his mind. He responded, quote, I must take things as I find them. I find the forces divided, and I wish to unite them. Only one feasible plan has been presented for doing this. If you, or anyone else, had presented a better plan, I certainly should have adopted it. But all of your plans require reinforcements, which it is impossible to give you. It is very easy to ask for reinforcements, but it is not so easy to give them when you have no disposable troops at your command. I must beg of you, General, to hurry along this movement. Your reputation, as well as mine, may be involved in its rapid execution. And that was that. Now, McClellan's pride was... Uh, certainly wounded by the, by the order, but he also genuinely believed that withdrawing from the peninsula was a strategic error. To Ellen, uh, he predicted, quote, I think the result of their machinations will be that Pope will be badly thrashed within 10 days and that they will be very glad to turn over the redemption of their affairs to me. Uh, Halleck's directive was prompted in part by rumors that Stonewall Jackson was heading north to confront Pope. And those rumors were true. Uh, the question was whether Lee and the rest of the army uh, would be with Stonewall and, as a consequence, abandoning Richmond. To find out for sure, Halleck afforded Mack one last opportunity to go on the offensive, to probe towards Richmond and, and gauge the response. Uh, Mack sent Joe Hooker out with 17,000 men. Lee moved as if to attack, and Mack ordered a withdrawal, believing that he had proved that the bulk of the Army of Northern Virginia was staying to defend the southern capital. To this, Lee remarked, quote, I have no idea that he will advance on Richmond now, unquote. Thus, Lee now felt safe um, moving his whole army north to join Jackson in taking the general he referred to as uh, the miscreant Pope down a notch or two. Pope was a miscreant, according to Lee and the other Southerners, uh, due to an order that he had recently issued allowing for confiscation and destruction of private property and rough treatment of suspected guerrilla fighters. And that style of warfare was ungentlemanly in McClellan's eyes as well. 
He saw Pope's order as sanctioning pillaging and stealing. It would turn the army into a set of wicked and demoralized robbers. And Pope also gave a speech to his men that uh, all but called McClellan a coward. And the soldiers of the Army of the Potomac took it personally, and they came to detest Pope. Uh, Mack predicted to Ellen with regard to Pope, quote, Very badly whipped he will be, and ought to be. Such a villain as he ought to bring defeat upon any cause that employs him. Now, McClellan's letters about Pope kind of brings us back to the point that we made earlier about how, how Mack's letters to Ellen ha have done a lot to hurt his reputation. He probably wouldn't have said something like that publicly. He was venting his frustration in a letter written to his wife in confidence. After the war, some of the officers who served with McClellan would comment about how the tone of his letters and dispatches was surprising when compared to how respectful he was in person. So the rivalry that developed between McClellan and Pope led to the incident that, more than anything else, has led to some observers um, questioning whether McClellan was truly committed to winning the war. On August 14th, Halleck ordered McClellan to, to begin pulling out of the Tidewater. And like most of his other movements, he took his sweet time about it. He insisted that our material can only be saved by using the whole army to cover it if we were pressed. So they needed to get out, you know, how they came in, slow and steady. After all, according to Alan Pinkerton, there were still 130,000 rebel soldiers covering Richmond, ha having freshly arrived under the command of PGT Beauregard. If the withdrawal was disorganized, the Army of the Potomac would open itself up to attack and destruction. So the army was moved piecemeal. Now, in, in McClellan's defense, the delay was, was also aggravated by um, delayed transport boats. But McClellan certainly didn't speed along the process. On August 21st, a full week after Halleck's order, McClellan, who was still at Fort Monroe, received a wire from Halleck. Pope was being threatened, so McClellan needed to hurry. He needed to move his army fast to help Pope before he was attacked. Mack remarked to Ellen of the urgency of Halleck's note, quote, Now that they are in trouble, they seem to want the Quaker, the procrastinator, the coward, and the traitor. Unquote. And Mack was on his way, setting sail for the rendezvous point uh, northeast of Fredericksburg. Now, Lee was simultaneously making a similar trip, but it was shorter for Lee because he and his men could move by rail, taking advantage, like he so often did, of the rebels' interior lines. The Army of the Potomac was scattered between Fredericksburg, Alexandria, and there was still a corps in the peninsula. When Pope abandoned his position on the Rappahannock, in response to pressure from Lee. Speaking of that retreat, McClellan again made a prediction to Ellen. They will suffer a terrible defeat if the present state of affairs continues. I know that with God's help, I can save them. And then he added, I see that the Pope bubble is likely to be suddenly collapsed. Stonewall Jackson is after him. And the paltry young man who wanted to teach me the art of war will in less than a week either be in full retreat or badly whipped he will begin to learn the value of entrenchments, lines of communication, and retreat. McClellan had made it to D.C. by August 26th, when news arrived of Jackson's capture and destruction of Pope's supply depot at Manassas Junction. The crafty Jackson had snuck around Pope's flank and positioned his army so that it was between Pope's and Washington. Uh, in a meeting with Halleck, Mack was directed to secure the defenses uh, in and around D.C. in preparation for 
a possible attack by Jackson, and also to send reinforcements to Pope as the Army of the Potomac continued to arrive. McClellan resisted reinforcing Pope. He said, The great object is to collect the whole army in Washington, ready to defend the works and act upon the flank of any force crossing the upper Potomac. He also argued that the artillery had not yet arrived from the peninsula, and the army didn't have enough wagons available. So even if the men got to Pope, they would be unequipped and unprepared. And besides, he believed Lee had 120,000 men in northern Virginia, and that there was a really good chance that Washington would, in fact, come under attack. But... Of course, capturing Washington wasn't Jackson's or Lee's objective. Their objective was to suppress the miscreant Pope. And by August 29th, it was obvious that Pope was in a real fight. Mack advised Lincoln that in Washington, they had two options. Quote, First, to concentrate all our available forces to open communication with Pope. Second, to leave Pope to get out of his scrape and at once use all our means to make the capital perfectly safe. No middle course will now answer. It will not do to delay any longer. End quote. When you think about it, Mack was more or less right. I mean, they could rally all the forces around Washington and ride to Pope's rescue, or they could let Pope try to handle things himself. Weakening Washington's defenses to send piecemeal reinforcements that could be defeated in detail would probably have been a bad idea. But even so, Lincoln was infuriated by the suggestion that Pope be left to get out of his own scrape, especially in light of the obvious animosity that was brewing between the two generals. Uh, the president's secretary later remembered, quote, he said it really seemed to him that McClellan wanted Pope defeated, end quote. Nonetheless, some men from the Army of the Potomac did make it to the fight at Second Manassas, uh, primarily under McClellan's friend Fitzjohn Porter. The problem was that they, and Porter, were hostile and borderline insubordinate to Pope. And there was another fundamental problem, too, and this one I think is on Halleck, in that the command structure was not very clear at that point. Mack wasn't sure if he was actually in command of any men, and if so, which ones? Historians have disagreed over whether the, the failure to reinforce Pope was McClellan's normal caution playing itself out, or if it was motivated by his dislike of Pope. Uh, Mack did uh, eventually send General William Franklin to join Porter in reinforcing Pope, and in doing so, he instructed Franklin, Go and do all you possibly can. Let it not be said that any part of the Army of the Potomac failed in its duty to General Pope. End quote. Uh, Franklin, though, stopped at Annandale, not actually making it to the battle. Uh, the following day, Mack sent Sumner's Corps as well though it would only arrive in time to find that uh, Pope's Army of Virginia had been abused by Lee, Jackson, and Longstreet. So however you look at it, General Pope was, was badly whipped at Second Manassas, and McClellan didn't do as much as, as he could have to stop that from happening. On August 30th, Mack rode out towards the sounds of battle uh, out of uniform, believing that he had effectively been removed from command. He lamented to Ellen, it is dreadful to listen to the cannonading and not be able to take any part in it, unquote. And he complained that if Halleck had lost faith in him, he should have just put Pope in command rather than, you know, putting him in limbo and confusing everybody. To Halleck, he said, if it is not deemed best to entrust me with the command, even of my own army, I simply ask to be permitted to share their fate on the field of battle, end quote. But like McClellan, 
most of the Army of the Potomac never made it to the field of battle at Second Manassas. In fact, Franklin and Sumner arrived just in time to greet a battered, demoralized, and retreating Army of Virginia. One of the retreating soldiers recalled, quote, As they lined the road, they greeted us with mocking laughter, taunts, and jeers on the advantages of the new route to Richmond, while many of them, in plain English, expressed their joy at the downfall of the braggart rival of the great soldier of the peninsula, end quote. Uh, notwithstanding Pope's report that the post-battle withdrawal, quote, has been made in perfect order and without loss, the troops are in good heart and marched off the field without the least worry or confusion, end quote. The Army of Virginia, having been severely outgeneraled, had completely lost confidence in General Pope. McClellan biographer Stephen Sears, who is by no means a McClellan defender, concludes of Mack's role at 2nd Manassas, Quote, it is too much to say, as detractors later said, that George McClellan was deliberately conspiring to have the Army of Virginia beaten at Bull Run, if for no other reason than his strong feeling for the men of his own army fighting on that field. What can be said, however, is that his bruised sensibilities and his unreasoning contempt for Pope convinced him that general would be, and deserved to be, defeated. End quote. Now, I'm not so sure that Mack's contempt for Pope was uh, unreasoning, but otherwise, I, I think Sears pretty much nails it with that assessment. On August 31st, as word of Pope's defeat arrived in Washington, McClellan learned of the extent of his present command by reading a newspaper. Halleck, having neglected to advise him personally that he commanded that portion of the Army of the Potomac that has not been sent forward to General Pope's command. McClellan succinctly described his, his position. I am left in command of nothing. But that wouldn't last long. Shortly thereafter, Pope wired Halleck with a question that left old brains, as he was called, in a state of panic. Pope wondered, I should like to know whether you feel secure about Washington should this army be destroyed. You must judge what is to be done, having in view the safety of the capital. Now, if Halleck had felt secure about Washington's defenses before getting Pope's note, uh, he sure as heck didn't anymore. And, and there was more. Pope declared, unless something can be done to restore tone to this army, it will melt away before you know it. And so Halleck uh, turned to the man that he had so recently helped to maneuver out of command, Little Mac. Halleck pleaded, quote, I beg of you to assist me in this crisis with your ability and experience. I am utterly tired out, end quote. And of course, McClellan agreed, provided that Halleck would tell him officially where he stood in the command structure. By September 2nd, uh, over the protests of pretty much the entire cabinet, Lincoln restored Mack to command and sent Pope to Minnesota to do some soul searching. Secretary of War Stanton, in particular, strenuously objected to Mack's reinstatement, and he circulated a petition demanding, quote, the immediate removal of George B. McClellan from any command in the armies of the United States, unquote. When a uh, Lincoln advisor questioned whether the petition was, was insufficiently deferential to the president, Stanton sneered, I know of no particular obligation I am under to the president. He called me to a difficult position and imposed on me labors and responsibilities which no man could carry, end quote. Uh, at the cabinet meeting in which Mack's reinstatement was announced, Secretary of Treasury Salmon Chase protested, 
I cannot but feel that giving command to McClellan is equivalent to giving Washington to the rebels. End quote. Of course, Lincoln listened to the cabinet's objections, and he recognized that McClellan had what Lincoln called the slows and was good for nothing for an onward movement. But a resigned Lincoln stated, we must use what tools we have. And he admitted, there is no man in the army who can lick these troops of ours into shape half as well as he. He excels in making others ready to fight. End quote. So back in command, Mack rode out to meet the rest of the dejected, deflated army. It was a cool, rainy day. The men marched slowly, heads hung low. But then, like a surge of electricity had been injected into the column, the mood lifted, and the sun started to shine again on the Army of the Potomac. News was spreading, and spreading fast, up and down the ranks, regiment to regiment. Little Mac was back. Quoting now from several soldiers um, there with the Army that day, quote, We were so glad to see him that we cheered until we were hoarse. His presence seemed to act magically upon them. Despondency was replaced by confidence. From extreme sadness, we passed in a twinkling to a delirium of delight. A deliverer had come. Men threw their caps high into the air and danced and frolicked like schoolboys. Even the troops in the Army of Virginia, who had not previously fought under McClellan, cheered the news of his reinstatement. And the extraordinarily swift improvement in the Army's morale isn't just an interesting testament to the, the quality of McClellan's reputation with the men. As it turns out, it also had important strategic significance. You see, Lee was anticipating that the army would be utterly demoralized after Second Manassas, and therefore it would be sluggish and reluctant to engage. And relying on that, he, he began almost immediately to plan an invasion into the north, setting his eyes on Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. But the soldiers weren't demoralized. They placed the blame for the defeat squarely on General Pope. Second Manassas was his fault, not theirs. And so they were raring to get into another fight to prove that, now that their man was back in command, they could fight as hard as any rebel. And Mack's reinstatement had another important effect, too, and this one was political. In the days immediately after Second Manassas, the press vigorously debated whether McClellan's failure to reinforce Pope was proof that he... He really did have Southern sympathies and wasn't committed to the war effort. But the fact that Lincoln put him back in command so soon was viewed as confirmation that he had acted reasonably. After all, if there was any chance that Mack had withheld troops to purposefully sabotage Pope, there's no way that Lincoln would have put him back in command, right? And I think that's actually a really good point. Uh, of course, the Democratic papers that supported Mack took it a little further, arguing for the replacement of Edwin Stanton. The New York Herald advised McClellan to, quote, insist upon the modification and reconstruction of the cabinet in order to have it purged of the radical taint which may again infuse its poison over the whole, unquote. And by that point, stories were already filtering in about rebel occupation of Frederick, Maryland, which is about 50 miles or so northwest of, of Washington. And this wasn't Stonewall Jackson with a few thousand men. This was Lee with nearly the entire Army of Northern Virginia. So Northerners were starting to panic. Reports circulated that in addition to Washington and Baltimore, Philadelphia, New York, and even Boston were in danger. Mack had only been back in command for a few days, but in little of no time, he was ready to take the field with 85,000 men, 
which is really impressive considering that the army was falling apart uh, under Pope practically the day before. Uh, Lincoln took note of the vigor uh, with which the restored general had set about his work. He noted, McClellan is working like a beaver. He seems to be aroused to doing something after the snubbing he got last week, unquote. Uh, Mack confided his satisfaction with his position to Ellen, quote, I have now the entire confidence of the government and the love of the army. My enemies are crushed, silent and disarmed. If I defeat the rebels, I shall be master of the situation, end quote. And he even had some nice things to say about the administration, quote, The feeling of the government toward me is kind and trusting. I hope with God's blessing to justify the great confidence they now repose in me and will bury the past in oblivion, end quote. But McClellan overestimated the extent to which that he had uh, won back the president's confidence. Lincoln uh, confided to his secretary, I am of the opinion that this public feeling against him will make it expedient to take important command from him, but he is too useful just now to sacrifice, end quote. So after the war, McClellan would report that uh, marching through Maryland in September 1862, he was looking to strike an aggressive posture. He wanted to get the men back in the saddle, restore their confidence after Manassas. He wrote to Ellen, I expect to fight a great battle and to do my best at it. And Lee was looking for a fight, too. He, too, said after the war, I went into Maryland to give battle, and could I have kept General McClellan in ignorance of my position and plans, I would have fought and crushed him, end quote. Uh, initially, Lee was successful in keeping McClellan in ignorance. The Union cavalry was unable to pierce Jeb Stuart's cavalry shield, and so McClellan was relying primarily on civilian reports in determining Lee's numbers. Uh, reports came in from Frederick that Lee had 100,000 men, and Halleck provided the same number. With only 85,000, McClellan was going to have to be careful. To Halleck, he wrote, quote, The enemy have 110,000 on this side of the river. I have not so many, so I must watch them closely and try to catch them in some mistake. I think my present positions will check their advance into Pennsylvania and give me time to get some reinforcements that I need very much, end quote. Lee's ultimate objective was to take Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and to destroy the Pennsylvania Railroad Bridge um, over the Susquehanna River in the process. Uh, then he would threaten one of the large East Coast cities in the area, uh, Baltimore, Washington, or Philadelphia. But McClellan didn't know that, and he was getting conflicting information from Halleck. On September 11th, news began arriving from Frederick that the rebels were leaving the town, and the reports had Lee moving in basically every direction— uh, he was coming east to attack McClellan, then he was moving north on Harrisburg and Philadelphia, and then he was crossing back into Virginia or marching west to take the garrison at Harper's Ferry. Uh, General George Meade summed it up like this, quote, Where they have gone and what their plans are is as yet involved in obscurity, and I think our generals are a little puzzled, unquote. As it turns out, the reason that the reports had the rebels moving in every direction was because it was more or less true. Lee had daringly divided his army into five different parts. Uh, three different detachments under Jackson were moving on Harper's Ferry from three different directions, one of which did in fact cross back down into Virginia to do so. Now, McClellan wanted to abandon the 12,000-man Harper's Ferry garrison because it was cut off and exposed to capture, but Halleck overruled him. Strategically, McClellan was probably correct because the eventual surrender of Harper's Ferry 
to Jackson would be the largest single uh, surrender of Union troops to rebels during the entire war. But by leaving the garrison in place, Halleck had unwittingly set something of a trap for Lee. Because the reason Lee was dividing his army was because uh, he didn't want the garrison threatening his supply and communication lines while he was in Pennsylvania. Lee's move was, uh, of course, exceptionally dangerous, splitting the army with a larger Union army nearby. But Lee figured that with the cautious McClellan back in command, he'd have plenty of time. Speaking to one of his subordinates about the risk, Lee said, You doubtless regard it hazardous to leave McClellan practically on my line of communication and to march into the heart of the enemy's country. Then, upon the officer that he was speaking to confirming that he did, in fact, believe it was dangerous, uh, Lee explained himself, Are you acquainted with General McClellan? He is an able general, but a very cautious one. His enemies among his own people think him too much so. His army is in a very demoralized and chaotic condition and will not be prepared for offensive operations. Or he will not think it so for three or four weeks. Before that time, I hope to be on the Susquehanna. On September 12th and 13th, the Army of the Potomac began inching its way toward Frederick, slow and steady. And it looked as though Lee's assessment of, of Mack's timidity was correct. But as we already mentioned, Lee had overestimated the effect that the defeat at Manassas would have on the army's morale, uh, now that Little Mac was back in command. And their morale was improved even further now that they were traveling in friendly territory. In, uh, in contrast with Eastern Maryland, Western Maryland was decidedly pro-Union, and the Army of the Potomac was met with cheers as they marched. When they arrived in Frederick on September 13th, the town celebrated McClellan's arrival, and the town's liberation. The soldiers feasted on the wonderful food provided by the townsfolk. Uh, welcomed enthusiastically as they were, the men's morale soared. One soldier recalled, quote, Of all the memories of the war, none are more pleasant than those of our sojourn in the goodly city of Frederick. Unquote. And Mac remarked to Ellen, quote, I cannot describe to you for want of time the enthusiastic reception we met with yesterday in Frederick. I was nearly overwhelmed and pulled to pieces. I was seldom more affected. Men, women, and children crowded around us, weeping, shouting, and praying. End quote. Uh, the army was camped outside Frederick when McClellan received what was probably the single greatest stroke of good fortune uh, throughout the entire war. He, he was meeting with the delegation of local civic leaders when he was interrupted and presented with a document uh, found by an, an Indiana corporal wrapped around three cigars that purported to be issued by the assistant adjutant to R.E. Lee himself. It was entitled Special Orders Number 191, and it was addressed to General D.H. Hill. After rapidly making its way up the chain of command, the order was presented to Mac with a note from General Alpheus Williams, reading, quote, I enclose a special order of General Lee, commanding rebel forces, which was found on the field where my corps encamped. It is a document of interest, and it is also thought genuine. End quote. Mac prudently questioned whether the order was authentic, but an officer on his staff had served before the war uh, with the adjutant who had drafted the order and confirmed that the handwriting was the same. And so convinced of its legitimacy, Mac exclaimed, now I know what to do. Here is a paper with which, if I cannot whip Bobby Lee, I will be willing to go home. As Shelby Foote describes it, lost order number 191, 
uh, by making McClellan aware of the incredible risk that Lee had taken. Quote, Dispelled in a flash the fog of war and pinpointed the several components of Lee's scattered army, McClellan's army, once it crossed the unoccupied Catoctins just ahead, would be closer to the two halves of Lee's army than those halves were to each other. What was more, one of those halves was itself divided into three unequal parts. The segments disposed on naked hilltops on the opposite banks of unfordable rivers. End quote. So McClellan had been handed a cheat code, and it was the key to defeating Lee. He sent a wire to Lincoln, quote, I have the whole rebel army force in front of me, but am confident that no time shall be lost. I have a difficult task to perform, but with God's blessing, we'll accomplish it. I think Lee has made a gross mistake and that he will be severely punished for it. The army is in motion as rapidly as possible. I hope for a great success if the plans of the rebels remain unchanged. I have all the plans of the rebels and will catch them in their own trap if my men are equal to the emergency. We'll send you trophies, end quote. As luck would have it, though, among the civilians on hand when the order was presented to McClellan was a rebel sympathizer who also recognized the significance of the order and who immediately began trying to get word to Jeb Stewart of the godsend with which McClellan had been blessed. So unbeknownst to McClellan, his window of opportunity was going to be shorter than anticipated. He was going to have to act fast, but he didn't. So why not, right? Well, it was the same story as on the peninsula, because for all of the wonderful intelligence the order provided, it said nothing about the size of the rebel detachments. Uh, Max cavalry, which he, he was now using for intelligence, uh, and General-in-Chief Henry Halleck, were both telling him that Lee crossed the Potomac with 100,000 men. So even separated, the rebel detachments could still pose a, a real threat, especially since Halleck uh, also thought that there were uh, 50,000 more rebels that were still in northern Virginia. Uh, Halleck's numbers came from civilians in Frederick, who thought that they were helping the Union war effort by passing on useful information that they had heard boastful rebel cavalrymen bragging about. In fact, Stonewall Jackson and Jeb Stewart had intentionally planted false information with the pro-Union citizens of Frederick, who they anticipated would do their patriotic duty by giving the information to the War Department. So, once again, McClellan believed that Lee had him outnumbered, though it's really hard to blame him this time. I mean, he was relying on basically identical numbers obtained through two different sources. As it turns out, Lee only brought uh, about 50,000 men with him, and a good portion of them were miles away, compared to Mac's uh, around 88,000 effectives by that point. Uh, so Mac began moving on September 14th, and to get to Lee, he needed to pass over South Mountain. And to do so, he planned on moving through two gaps, Turner's Gap and Crampton's Gap. At the former, the army ran into stiff resistance in the form of D.H. Hill's rear guard, Hill was overwhelmingly outnumbered, but he had the advantage of a strong position. As the massive Union column wound its way along the turnpike leading up to the gap, Hill wrote that he had never experienced a feeling of greater loneliness. It seems as though we were deserted by all the world and the rest of mankind. End quote. The Battle of South Mountain started early in the morning, and Hill's men fought desperately. Uh, moving toward the sound of the guns, McClellan drew cheers up and down the Union line as he approached the fighting on top of South Mountain. Uh, one soldier observed uh, of Mac's greeting by the men, <clears throat> quote, 
It seemed that an intermission had been declared in order that a reception might be tendered to the general-in-chief. A great crowd continually surrounded him, the most extravagant demonstrations indulged in. Hundreds even hugged the horse's legs and caressed his head and mane, end quote. Afternoon reinforcements under James Longstreet allowed Hill to hold the position until dark, but Longstreet reported to Lee that night that there was no way the rebels uh, could continue to hold the gap once morning came. Lee responded by ordering Hill and Longstreet to abandon the position that night and return to Sharpsburg to recross the Potomac. With Jackson still at Harper's Ferry, uh, he just didn't have the men to risk a battle with the Army of the Potomac. But before the retreat could commence, Lee received another report, this one from Jackson. Stonewall reported that Harper's Ferry was going to fall in the morning. Then Jackson could bring his portion of the army back to meet Lee at Sharpsburg. And so Lee decided that he would fight after all, and he began taking a position uh, along a ridge along Antietam Creek. Of course, McClellan had no idea of Lee's intentions. He reported to Halleck the next morning that he had perfectly reliable information that the enemy is making for Shepherdstown in a perfect panic. And Shepherdstown is on the Virginia side of the Potomac by Sharpsburg. Uh, Mac went on. Lee last night stated publicly that he must admit that they had been shockingly whipped. And McClellan celebrated the victory at South Mountain and wrote to Ellen, quote, If I can believe one-tenth of what is reported, God has seldom given an army a greater victory. End quote. Uh, the president, meanwhile, uh, believing the reports of a great victory, ordered him to destroy the rebel army if possible. So McClellan, believing that the battle had already been won, and that Lee was in retreat, he acted with no sense of urgency. He slowly moved his army across the mountain and set up a nice comfortable headquarters at uh, Boonesboro. Morning fog prevented him from observing Lee's position until the afternoon, uh, when he scoped out the rebel army with telescopes. At first, Lee had only 18,000 men, but he was consolidating his forces and soon had 25,000, then eventually 40,000 once Jackson had arrived. But Throughout the day, Mack and the rest of the officer corps uh, continued to believe that they were facing off against a significantly uh, larger rebel force. So in a way, it was a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, McClellan's philosophy was uh, to assume the worst case scenario, and that meant assuming that Jackson had already rejoined Lee, and so Mack needed to proceed with caution. Uh, but because of that caution and the plotting movement that came with it, he allowed Jackson to arrive before the battle began, with all of his men, uh, save a single division under A.P. Hill, which had been assigned to manage the surrender of Harper's Ferry. Now, the afternoon of the 15th, Mack observed that Lee appeared ready for battle, uh, but it was already too late in the afternoon to attack. He remarked that tomorrow, if he is found to be in position, he will be attacked. He was assuming Lee would withdraw, though, so on the 16th, he was surprised to find that Lee was still there waiting for him. Again, Mack delayed the attack and, and vowed to fight it out the next day. Only this time, he was actually expecting a battle, and he spent the afternoon devising his battle plan, uh, which revolved around three bridges crossing Antietam Creek uh, between the Army of the Potomac and the rebels. And I'm going to let historian James McPherson describe Mack's battle plan, since he sums it up about as well as possible. McPherson writes, quote, McClellan massed three corps on the Union right to deliver the initial attack and placed Burnside's large Ninth Corps on the left, 
with orders to create a diversion to prevent Lee from transferring troops from this sector to reinforce his left. McClellan held four Union divisions and the cavalry in reserve, behind the right and center, to exploit any breakthrough. He also expected Burnside to cross the creek and roll up the Confederate right, if opportunity offered. It was a good battle plan, and if well executed, it might have accomplished Lincoln's wish to destroy the rebel army. But it was not well executed. End quote. McPherson's characterization of the plan as not well executed is due to a marked lack of coordination. Instead of hitting Lee from multiple angles simultaneously, as intended, the battle proceeded in three separate stages, starting on the Union right in the morning, then moving to the center, then concluding on the left in the afternoon. And due to the lack of coordination, Lee was able to shift men throughout the day using his interior lines, uh, thereby making up in part for his significantly smaller numbers. So the Battle of Antietam began at daybreak, when Hooker's Corps moved down the Hagerstown Pike to attack Jackson's Corps on the Rebel left. Mack began the day at his headquarters to the rear, but he moved up closer uh, to the action during the day, setting up a field headquarters with uh, Porter's Reserve Corps. One of Porter's subordinates recorded how throughout the day Mack directed the battle, quote, by nods, signs, or in words so low-toned and brief that the nearest bystanders had but little benefit from them. When not engaged with Porter, McClellan stood in a soldierly attitude, intently watching the battle and smoking with the utmost apparent calmness, conversing with surrounding officers and giving his orders in the most quiet undertones. Everything was as quiet and punctilious as a drawing-room ceremony." End quote. As the morning went on, word began arriving of uh, absolutely vicious fighting on the Union right, and Mack recognized early on that they were in a knockdown, dragout brawl. He wired Halleck, quote, We are in the midst of the most terrible battle of the war, perhaps of history. Thus far it looks well, but I have great odds against me. Our loss has been terrific, but we have gained much ground. End quote. As brutal as it was, the fighting on the right was inconclusive. As Sumner who was shaken up after witnessing the destruction of a uh, very poorly deployed division, was calling for reinforcements, just so that they can hold the line. But Franklin, on the other hand, wanted to attack. McClellan decided that he would travel to the right to see for himself. And at first, he agreed with Franklin, saying, If we cannot whip the enemy now, we may as well die upon the field. If we succeed, we end the war. End quote. But Sumner talked him out of it. And instead of pressing the action... He let the fighting on the right draw to a close for the day. General Baldy Smith would later describe that decision as the nail in McClellan's coffin as a general. The Union advance on the rebel center was well underway and taking heavy losses at the sunken road until enfilading fire turned the sunken road into bloody lane. And the breakthrough left Lee's army exposed with a little bit of few artillery units protecting its center. After the war, a rebel officer described the situation like this, quote, Lee's army was ruined and the end of the Confederacy was in sight, end quote. Now was the time to send in Porter's reserves. But again, Mack declined. Throughout the entire day, he was certain that Lee was holding back a large reserve of his own. So Porter needed to be held back for when the inevitable rebel counterattack came. Now, on the Union left, Burnside had been ordered to advance at 9 a.m., but the attack didn't go off on schedule, leaving McClellan exasperated. What is Burnside about? Tell him if it costs him 10,000 men, we must go on now. 
Burnside had been tasked with crossing a 12-foot-wide stone bridge, later to bear his name. But the bridge was covered by an elevated defensive position on the opposite side of the creek, allowing a relatively small number of rebels, commanded by former uh, Confederate Secretary of War Robert Toombs, to prevent the crossing. And the ford that Burnside's engineers had initially selected as a, an alternate crossing point uh, ended up being unpassable. So it wasn't until 1 p.m., after the fighting on the right had concluded, that Burnside managed to take the bridge uh, through an all-out assault. Upon learning of Burnside's success, Mack ordered an immediate follow-up advance on the rebel right. But Burnside and his men were exhausted and disorganized from the difficult crossing, and the advance was delayed for two crucial hours. Even so, at first, it appeared as though Burnside was going to roll up the rebel flank and prevent Lee's escape back uh, across the Potomac. With the rebel center and left already battered from the fighting earlier in the day, it very well uh, could have meant the destruction of the Army of Northern Virginia that Lincoln sought. But it was not to be. Because just as Burnside was ready to deliver the decisive blow, one of the most dramatic moments of the war occurred. James McPherson provides a, a, a great narrative of the nail-biting affair. McPherson describes it like this, quote, Lee looked anxiously to the south, where his right flank seemed to be disintegrating. Suddenly, he saw a cloud of dust in the distance that soon materialized as marching men. Whose troops are those? Lee asked a nearby lieutenant with a telescope. The lieutenant peered intently for what seemed an eternity, then said, They are flying the Virginia and Confederate flag, sir. Sighing with relief, Lee observed, It is A.P. Hill from Harpers Ferry. Indeed, it was. Hill had driven his hard-fighting division up the road, and that's the 15 miles from Harpers Ferry, at a killing pace in response to an urgent summons from Lee. These troops crashed into Burnside's flank in late afternoon, just as the Yankees seemed about to crumple Lee's right. The surprise was compounded by the captured blue uniforms many of Hill's men were wearing, which caused four Union flank regiments to hold their fire for fatal minutes." End quote. Now, the blue uniforms that McPherson references had been appropriated from the Union stores at Harper's Ferry by Hill's men. Uh, the rebel soldiers were not above wearing Union blue if it meant they could replace the tattered rags that they were wearing with a fresh new uniform. A war correspondent recorded McClellan's reaction to the fighting on the Union left. Quote, McClellan's glass for the last half hour has seldom been turned away from the left. He sees clearly enough that Burnside is pressed. Needs no messenger to tell him that. His face grows darker with anxious thought. He turns a half-questioning look on Fitzjohn Porter, who stands by his side, gravely scanning the field. But Porter slowly shakes his head, and one may believe that the same thought is passing through the minds of both generals. They are the only reserves of the army. They cannot be spared. End quote. And so on the right, the center, and the left, opportunities were presented to deploy Porter's reserve corps. And each opportunity stood a reasonably good chance of leading to a decisive victory. But each time, McClellan's overly cautious nature got the better of him. It, it was like the manager of a baseball team holding back a power-hitting pinch hitter for just the right opportunity, but then letting the game end with the slugger still on the bench. Nearly one-third of the Army of the Potomac's available men did not see action at Antietam. And again, McClellan still believed that a counterattack could come at any time from the large reserve force that Lee just had to be hiding behind his lines. 
Max sent a message to Burnside, and anticipating the inevitable counterattack, uh, was going to come on the left. Quote, Tell General Burnside this is the battle of the war. He must hold his ground till dark at any cost. I will send him Miller's battery. I can do nothing more. I have no infantry. Tell him if he cannot hold his ground, then the bridge. To the last man, always the bridge. If the bridge is lost, all is lost. End quote. But in truth, Lee's army was in no shape to launch any kind of meaningful counterattack. Antietam was a blood-stained, destructive business. Four times as many men died in that battle than at the invasion of Normandy. More of the dead had fought for the Union, including the men surrendered at Harper's Ferry. Union losses for the campaign were nearly double the 14,000 Confederate casualties. But the Army of the Potomac could better absorb those losses, and Lee's army was on the ropes. So pretty much everyone expected that the next day, the two armies would pick right back up where they left off. McClellan sent a telegram to Washington in that regard, and, and Lee ordered his men to line up for battle, even though his subordinates recommended withdrawing the night of the 17th. The reason that there was no second day of Antietam, though, was that both commanding generals prepared for the other to be the aggressor. Lee was simply in no shape to attack, uh, but he lined his men up for battle as if to dare McClellan to come forward again. And the aggressive posture probably confirmed in McClellan's mind that Lee's army was in better shape than it actually was. So after no action on the 18th, Lee slipped back across the Potomac that night, having been thwarted in his plan to invade Pennsylvania, but with his army still intact. McClellan has received a lot of criticism for his, his failure to follow up on Antietam. But the truth is that pretty much none of the Union officer corps thought that an immediate follow-up assault would be prudent. A staff officer wrote later, quote, Now that all is over, you will hear that we ought to have advanced the next day. Well, I say that myself. But no one thought so at the time. I know of no advocates for a continuance of the battle on the 18th, end quote. And this was largely, once again, the result of overestimation of Confederate strength. The War Department in Washington having been duped by rebel misinformation, told McClellan that Lee had somewhere around 97,000 men, and pretty much all the Army of the Potomac generals on the scene estimated similar strength. Now, in fact, Lee only had 30,000 effectives. For his part, McClellan explained his decision not to resume the battle like this. Quote, At this critical juncture, I should have had a narrow view of the condition of the country, had I been willing to hazard another battle with less than an absolute assurance of success. At that moment, Virginia lost, Washington menaced, Maryland invaded, the national cause could afford no risks of defeat. Lee's army might have marched as it pleased on Washington, Baltimore, Philadelphia, or New York, and nowhere east of the Alleghenies was there another organized force able to arrest its march. End quote. And this, this explanation goes back to McClellan's fear of failure that we discussed in part one. He didn't go for the kill because he was too concerned about what might happen if he lost. And truth be told, a loss on Union territory would have been devastating to the Union war effort. And not just due to the threat to the eastern cities. At that point in the war, British Prime Minister Lord Palmerston was seriously considering intervention and a Union defeat in Maryland could very well have prompted him to take action, uh, particularly when you consider that, that Lincoln had not yet issued the Emancipation Proclamation. So, officially, 
the war was not yet about ending slavery. But even with Lee escaping, though, Antietam was a Union victory, and McClellan viewed it as a great victory. He wrote to Ellen, quote, I feel that I have done all that can be asked in twice saving the country. This last short campaign is a sufficient legacy for our child, so far as honor is concerned, end quote. And he viewed the win as a sort of redemption after the failure in the Tidewater. He went on, History will, I trust, do me justice. In deciding that it was not my fault that the campaign of the peninsula was not successful, I have shown that I can fight battles and win them, end quote. And so the Northern press, as usual, was split. Uh, as expected, the Democrat papers gave McClellan great credit for the victory, while the Republican papers criticized him for uh, not going for the coup de grace. Uh, for Lincoln, disappointed as he was with Lee's escape, Antietam was still a sufficient victory to follow it up with the Emancipation Proclamation shortly afterwards. McClellan complained that in doing so unilaterally, without a congressional vote, Lincoln was, quote, inaugurating servile war, emancipating the slaves, and at one stroke of the pen, changing our free institutions into a despotism, end quote. Now, there's some obvious irony in that statement, but his view was not at all uncharacteristic of the popular consensus in the army. Uh, Fitz John Porter remembered, quote, The proclamation was ridiculed in the army, caused disgust, discontent, and expressions of disloyalty to the views of the administration, end quote. Uh, from a practical standpoint, the soldiers still considered themselves as fighting to save the Union. And their concern was that the further toward abolition that the administration went, the harder it was going to be to reach a negotiated peace without uh, officially separating the country. A, a reporter with the New York Herald, after speaking with uh, numerous Army of the Potomac officers, concluded that the Emancipation Proclamation, quote, will go far towards producing an expression on the part of the army that will startle the country and give us a military dictator, end quote. Now, in all fairness, McClellan was uh, he was not against emancipation. He just thought that it, it should be done gradually uh, with compensation and should not be a goal of the war effort. He considered going on record in opposition to the proclamation, but decided against it after consulting with some politically minded friends. Instead, he issued a general order uh, to the army, emphasizing the military's obligation to obey the civilian government and strongly discouraging, quote, Discussions by officers and soldiers concerning public measures, when carried at all beyond temperate and respectful expressions of opinion, end quote. And he concluded, the remedy for political errors, if any are committed, is to be found only in the action of the people at the polls, end quote. Uh, the order did a great deal to ease the dissatisfaction with the administration that the proclamation uh, had stirred up in the army. Uh, even McClellan's staunch critics had to begrudgingly admit as the New York Tribune did, that the, uh, the order had been drafted temperately, deferentially, and with profound respect for the constituted authorities of the nation, end quote. But the temporary praise didn't stop the continued criticism uh, of his failure to chase after Lee. The Tribune concluded of the Army's present posture, quote, It is to be quiet along the Potomac for some time to come. George, whom Providence helps according to his nature, has found himself on one side of a ditch, which Providence had already made for him, with the enemy on the other, and has no idea of moving. 
So the two armies will watch each other for nobody knows how many weeks, and we shall have the poetry of war, with pickets drinking from the same stream, holding friendly converse, and sending newspapers across by various ingenious contrivances. End quote. And you can be sure that the reference to the general by his first name was not intended affectionately. Lincoln, of course, uh, led the call for further action, but Mack resisted, writing to the president, This army is not now in condition to undertake another campaign, nor to bring on another battle. End quote. Honest Abe wasn't satisfied, though, and so he decided that he would pay the army a visit to see for himself if, if the holdup was warranted. Lincoln arrived on October 1st without any other politicians in Stowe. Uh, he wanted to check on the condition and morale of the army, he said publicly. Privately, though, he admitted, I went up to the field to try to get McClellan to move. Mack was well aware of the true reason for the visit. As he wrote to Ellen, the real purpose of his visit is to push me into a premature advance into Virginia. Now, according to McClellan's telling of it, uh, the meeting was cordial and positive. He recalled, quote, he more than once assured me that he was fully satisfied with my whole course from the beginning. The only fault he could possibly find was that I was perhaps too prone to be sure that everything was ready before acting, but that my actions were all right when I started, end quote. And he wrote to Ellen that the president was very affable, and I really think he does feel very kindly towards me personally. He told me he was convinced that I was the best general in the country, etc., end quote. And perhaps less credibly, McClellan remembered a conversation that started with the president declaring, General, you have saved the country. You must remain in command and carry us through to the end. And then McClellan tells us that he next told the president that that, that would be impossible. The influences at Washington will be too strong for you, Mr. President. I will not be allowed the required time for preparation. And to that, McClellan remembered that Lincoln responded, General, I pledge myself to stand between you and harm. In truth, Lincoln was thinking seriously about uh, removing McClellan, but he was concerned about two things. First, that removing the general would negatively affect the Republicans in the upcoming midterm elections. And second, that the army, which Lincoln was still referring to as McClellan's bodyguard, might mutiny if their little Mac was taken away from them again. Now, think about this for a second. Lincoln, the master politician, is legitimately concerned that if he fires Mac, he might lose the army. It, it could not have escaped Lincoln's attention that the polite reception that he received when he visited the army was uh, significantly less enthusiastic than the cheers that McClellan drew every time he rode out. Now, for all his faults, you have to admit that, that Mac truly inspired his men and had their respect. And, and so the president decided that he would give the general one more chance. And in his deliberate style, McClellan was hard at work on a new strategy. He proposed a fall campaign to secure the Shenandoah Valley and Northern Virginia, to be followed by infrastructure repairs that would ease logistics for a spring 1863 movement on Richmond. Once again, it sounds like a, you know, a solid plan. But the continued delay was, was unacceptable. Lincoln dictated an order to Mack, sent through Halleck, directing the army to cross the Potomac and give battle to the enemy or drive him south. Your army must move now while the roads are good, end quote. Mack responded that he would move, except that he was short on supplies and horses. Now, as it turns out, the Army of Northern Virginia was, you know, running a little short on supplies and horses, too. 
So in an effort to address that problem, on October 10th, Jeb Stuart led 1,800 rebel horsemen across the Potomac toward Chambersburg, Pennsylvania. After capturing Chambersburg on the 11th and spending lavishly at the town's shops using uh, Confederate paper money, which was worthless to the shop owners, Stuart's men moved east through the Blue Ridge Mountains, then uh, back south to recross the Potomac back into Virginia on the 12th with 1,200 captured horses in stow along with 30 public officials serving as hostages. It was Stuart's second ride completely around McClellan's army, uh, the first having been on the peninsula. And it was an embarrassment that did not go unnoticed by the president. When asked about McClellan's failure to hinder Stuart's successful raid on Chambersburg, Lincoln traced a circle on the ground using an umbrella that he, he was holding. Uh, questioned about the gesture, he explained, When I was a boy, we used to play a game. Three times around and out. Stuart has been around him twice. If he goes around him once more, gentlemen, McClellan will be out. End quote. Uh, to McClellan, Lincoln suggested, logically, quote, If the enemy had more occupation south of the river, his cavalry would not be so likely to make raids north of it. End quote. The day after Stuart escaped back into Virginia, Lincoln sent Mack a letter that amounted to a final test for his general. The letter read, quote, You remember my speaking to you of what I called your overcautiousness. Are you not overcautious when you assume you cannot do what the enemy is constantly doing? Should you not claim to be at least his equal in prowess and act upon the claim? You are now nearer Richmond than the enemy is by the route that you can and he must take. Why can you not reach there before him unless you admit that he is more than your equal on the march? I would press closely to him fight him if a favorable opportunity should present, and at least try to beat him to Richmond on the inside track. I say try. If we never try, we shall never succeed. This letter is in no sense in order. End quote. If we never try, we shall never succeed, the president wrote. You miss 100% of the shots you don't take. Now, at first, it, it actually looked as though the letter was going to do the trick, though Lincoln was doubtful. Mack reported that he was he was almost ready to move. He just needed to get the men ready. And a week later, the army still having not budged, Halleck directed McClellan to telegraph when you will move and on what lines you propose to march. Mack responded that he could not yet advance because the army's cavalry horses were fatigued and in poor health. In reply, an increasingly frustrated Lincoln wrote, I have just read your dispatch about sore-tongued and fatigued horses. Will you pardon me for asking what the horses of your army have done since the Battle of Antietam that fatigues anything? End quote. Uh, two weeks after Lincoln's initial letter, um, on October 26th, McClellan, with 100,000 men, finally started across the river. As he set out, he informed Halleck that he was now ready to, to move upon the line indicated by the president. That is, he was going to try to beat Lee to Richmond, as Lincoln had suggested. And Lincoln responded positively, but Mack was beginning to see that his days were numbered. He confided to a corps commander uh, who asked about his plans for the next battle as they began the march south. I may not have command of the army much longer. Lincoln is down on me. McClellan marched slowly toward Culpeper, which is northwest of Fredericksburg. Um, apparently not overly eager to confront Lee 
and the 130,000 men that Alan Pinkerton assured him that Lee commanded. Lee, who had just a little over half of that estimate, dispatched Longstreet to occupy Culpeper, thereby blocking the Union path to Richmond. Longstreet had significantly farther to go, but he nonetheless easily beat the Army of the Potomac to Culpeper, and then he dug in, thwarting Lincoln's uh, you know, proposal to force a battle on favorable terms by threatening the rebel capital. And so McClellan had failed Lincoln's test, and the failure sealed Little Mac's fate. The president was determined to remove him from command. McClellan, Lincoln thought, was, quote, delaying on little pretexts of this and that. I begin to fear he was playing false, that he did not want to hurt the enemy. I saw how he could intercept the enemy on the way to Richmond. I determined to make that the test. If he let them get away, I would remove him. Lincoln advisor Francis Blair, who, who was pretty much the only McClellan ally uh, who was close to Lincoln uh, by that point, argued against removal and maintained that Mac was still the Union's one best hope for preservation. But it was no good. Lincoln had made up his mind. He, he was finished trying to, to bore with an auger too dull to take hold. Lincoln explained to Blair, I said I would remove him if he let Lee's army get away from him, and I must do so. He has got the slows, Mr. Blair. But McClellan uh, got a temporary reprieve because it was election day and Lincoln didn't want the move to seem political. Uh, the Democrats ended up making significant gains in the midterms, which the Democrat-leaning uh, New York Times described as a vote of want of confidence. A, a paper in Lincoln's home state of Illinois declared that the, um, the electorate had, quote, uttered their voice like the sound of many waters, and tyranny, corruption, and maladministration trembled. And just a little side note, I think it's interesting to, to note that the, the trend of the party that holds the presidency losing seats in Congress in off-year elections uh, goes back at least all the way back to the 1860s. And Lincoln described his reaction to the midterm rebuke as feeling like the boy who stubbed his toe on the way to see his girl. He was too big to cry, and it hurt too much to laugh, end quote. Even so, Lincoln's Republicans did well enough in New England, the border states, and the West to maintain slim control of the Congress. On October 5th, the day after the election, Halleck issued an order, well, two orders, at Lincoln's direction, removing Mack from command and replacing him with Ambrose Burnside. Brigadier General C.P. Buckingham was tasked with delivering the order due to Stanton's concern that McClellan wouldn't take the order seriously if it was delivered by a low-ranking messenger. Uh, Stanton, who you will remember, vowed to be McClellan's strongest supporter in the cabinet uh, prior to assuming his post as Secretary of War, uh, now he estimated a strong chance of some such mutinous action on the part of the commander of the Army of the Potomac, end quote. So Buckingham spoke with Burnside first, and over the course of a two-hour meeting, uh, he convinced Burnside to accept the command. Now, Burnside was reluctant because, well, because he was loyal to McClellan, and, and he was also concerned that he just wasn't qualified to lead the entire army. But Buckingham's assurance that the order was not a suggestion, and that Joe Hooker, who Burnside detested, was the alternate, uh, convinced him to take the job. So at 11 p.m., Burnside and Buckingham entered McClellan's headquarters to deliver the news. Uh, the order was handed to McClellan. He read it. It wrote, Major General McClellan, on receipt of the order of the president sent herewith, you will immediately turn over your command to Major General Burnside 
and repair to Trenton, New Jersey, reporting on your arrival at that place by telegraph for further orders, end quote. After reading it, Mack looked up and said, well, Burnside, I turn the command over to you. And at Burnside's request, he agreed to stay with the Army for a, you know, a few days to ease the transition. To get an idea of McClellan's true thoughts on, on being relieved, we can once again look at the letter that he wrote to Ellen that night. Quote, I am sure that not a muscle quivered, nor was the slightest expression of feeling visible on my face. They shall not have that triumph. I am sorry for him, meaning Burnside, and he never showed himself a better man or truer friend than now. They have made a great mistake, alas, for my poor country. I know in my innermost heart she never had a truer servant. Do not be at all worried I am not. I have done the best I could for my country. To the last I have done my duty as I understand it. That I must have made many mistakes I cannot deny. I do not see any great blunders, but no one can judge of himself. Our consolation must be that we have tried to do what was right. End quote. As expected, when the change of command was announced, the army took it hard. Men chanted, send him back, send him back, when McClellan gave his final address to them. And one soldier shouted, lead us to Washington, General, we'll follow you. Still another wrote, quote, I wish to God that General McClellan would put himself at the head of the army and throw the infernal scoundrels at Washington into the Potomac, end quote. A little Mac's farewell address was emotional for both the speaker and the audience. He said to the men, quote, in parting from you, I cannot express the love and gratitude I bear to you. As an army, you have grown up under my care. The battles you have fought under my command will proudly live in our nation's history. The glory you have achieved, our mutual perils and fatigues, the graves of our comrades fallen in battle and by disease, unite us still by an indissoluble tie. Farewell. End quote. A colonel in attendance recalled, There was hardly a dry eye in the ranks. Others could be seen gazing after him in mute grief, one may almost say despair. And McClellan was equally touched. He wrote, I did not know before how much they loved me, nor how dear they were to me. The scenes of today repay me for all that I have endured. A three-mile-long line of soldiers saw him off with warm cheers. A few officers suggested he resist the order, but McClellan wasn't having it. On the 11th, on his way out, his train stopped briefly, for a quick visit with a detachment at Warrenton. Shelby Foote described the final departure. Foote writes, quote, After he received the salute of a 2,000-man detachment stationed here, he boarded the train and took his seat. But before the engineer could depart, the troops broke ranks, surrounded the car, then uncoupled it, and ran it back, yelling threats against the administration and insisting McClellan should not leave. And here Foote is quoting uh, an observer, one word, one look of encouragement, the lifting of a finger, one witness later declared, would have been a signal for a revolt against lawful authority, the consequences of which no man can measure. Instead, McClellan stepped into the front platform and delivered a short address to the men, who had fallen silent as soon as he appeared. And now here Foot quotes McClellan, Stand by General Burnside as you have stood by me, and all will be well, he said. Calmed, the soldiers recoupled the car, and the train pulled out, followed by one long and mournful huzzah, as the men bade farewell to their late commander, end quote. And so this might very well have been McClellan's finest hour, and the greatest service that he rendered to his country. There have been uh, more than a few men throughout history who, if tempted by the proposition of using force of arms 
to assume power would not have been able to resist. McClellan did. Now, whether the army would have actually followed him is, of course, an open question. But to give you an idea of the hold that McClellan had on the army, uh, General George Armstrong Custer, uh, who served in um, the cavalry under Little Mac, recorded, quote, I have more confidence in General McClellan than in any man living. I would forsake everything and follow him to the ends of the earth. I would lay down my life for him, end quote. Now, as Lincoln, as Lincoln had anticipated, there was a lot of talk, particularly in the, the Democrat papers, that the removal was a political move designed to impair a potential rival candidate in the 1864 election. McClellan was coming off a victory, and the surely soon-to-come defeat of Lee would have made the young Napoleon too strong of a candidate. This line of thinking was bolstered by the fact that an order issued at the same time also removed from command Fitzjohn Porter, McClellan's friend and also a well-known Democrat. Porter was being court-martialed for failure to obey Pope's command at Manassas. He, he ended up being convicted in what was not a fair trial and cashiered from the army and disqualified from holding public office. However, in 1886, Porter's conviction was overturned, and he was recommissioned as a colonel, effective as of 1861, and allowed to retire from the service with honor. And the reason for the reversal was that after the war, Confederate war records and the testimony of rebel witnesses confirmed that had been telling the truth about his inability to follow the order in question um, as a result of Longstreet's presence on the flank. So uh, Confederates generally viewed the change of command positively, though that wasn't universal. The conventional wisdom among the Southerners was that losing McClellan was going to demoralize the army and that his replacement was more likely to make costly errors. Now, the former prediction ended up being you know, only a short-term problem, and the latter was accurate. Henry Kidd Douglas, who was on Stonewall Jackson's staff, summed up the rebel take on Mac's removal like this, quote, the attitude of our officers and men toward McClellan was peculiar. We seemed to understand his limitations and defects of military character, and yet we were invariably relieved when he was relieved, for we unquestionably always believed him to be a stronger and more dangerous man than anyone who might be his successor. His great professional ability was never questioned. End quote. On learning of the, uh, the removal, R.E. Lee commented, we always understood each other so well. I fear they may continue to make these changes until they find someone whom I don't understand. End quote. Now, it's pretty safe to say that Lee did have McClellan figured out. Other than when McClellan fortuitously discovered Lee's plans before Antietam, Lee was consistently able to predict McClellan's movements. Even so, that didn't mean that Lee didn't have some respect for McClellan. Five years after the war... When asked to uh, identify the most um, competent Union general that he had fought against, Lee, without hesitation, responded, McClellan, by all odds. So after departing, McClellan traveled to New Jersey and then New York, where he spent the next few months preparing his final report as commander of the Army of the Potomac. He received a huge outpouring support at both states, and before long, he had become friendly with, with some big players in uh, New York Democratic politics including some suspected copperheads. By December, Democratic strategists were approaching him uh, about running for president. Mack was interested, but uh, he made it clear that he wasn't going to lobby for the nomination. 
He said of the presidency, quote, I shall do nothing to get it and trust that Providence will decide the matter as is best for the country, unquote. He wouldn't refuse to serve, as Sherman would later do, but he, was, uh, he wasn't going to campaign for it. Now, his association with Democrats, especially the Copperheads, led to surveillance by the War Department, and he discovered that his mail was being opened. Remember, Mac was still technically in the Army, even though he wasn't actively serving, um, other than preparing his report. And then in December 1862, the Union disaster at Fredericksburg led to some uh, pretty vocal calls, including from among the uh, Army of the Potomac's general staff, for Mac to be restored. Brigadier G.K. Warren pleaded, We must have McClellan back with unlimited and unfettered powers. His name is a tower of strength to everyone here. End quote. At morale was low after Fredericksburg, and the Army had become you know, disorganized under Burnside, who resigned and was replaced by Joe Hooker shortly thereafter. Interestingly, Hooker had called for a military dictatorship um, until the rebellion could be put down, though uh, Lincoln was confident he could keep the general in line. In February of 1863, Lincoln was seriously considering naming McClellan as uh, general-in-chief to replace the ineffective Halleck. Lincoln sent an advisor to meet with McClellan uh, about the position, and the advisor reported that Mack was receptive. But ultimately, Secretary of State Stewart talked Lincoln out of it, and nothing came of the idea. And, but when you think about it, this probably would have been uh, a really solid move. McClellan, he, he had the confidence of the men and the respect of the, you know, most of the general staff. And he had proven that he was an effective administrator and good with logistics. But his continuing association with uh, anti-administration Democrats probably made the move impossible for Lincoln politically. Um, calls to return Mack to command again increased after Chancellorsville, especially when Lee began his march north. In advance of Gettysburg, Mack uh, did play a limited role in organizing the New York militia. But uh, prior to the battle, rumors circulated throughout the army that McClellan was, was back in command, which seems to have led to a, a nice little boost in morale. In his memoirs, Mack wrote, quote, Most of the army thought at Gettysburg that they were fighting under my command. I have been told by many officers that McClellan's ghost won the battle because the men would not have fought as they did had they not supposed that I was in command, end quote. Now, McClellan is almost certainly giving himself too much credit here, but, you know, it's possible that, that the rumors, you know, helped the men's performance. In uh, August of 1863, uh, Mack finally released his 756-page report and it was widely read throughout the country after an abridged version was published. The radical Senator Benjamin Wade of Ohio prepared a counter-report, which was based upon McClellan's um, Joint Committee on the Conduct of the War Testimony. And it was designed to, to discredit McClellan, but the public generally believed McClellan's version of events, uh, for the most part. In his report, McClellan continued to maintain that he had consistently been outnumbered throughout this, his time in command, though that was becoming an increasingly untenable position as the war went on. Uh, Rebel General Jubal Early wrote of Mack's report, and Early was writing after the war, but he's referring to this, this time period, quote, He seems to have been troubled all the time with the specter of overwhelming numbers opposed to him. That he should have believed so when he had Professor Lowe with his balloons to make reports from the clouds. Uh, here early is referring to Thaddeus Lowe's use of hot air balloons for observation of rebel positions. 
And he continues, and his chief of the secret service and intelligent contrabands to fool him with their inventions may perhaps be conceded by some charitable persons. But that he should have written such nonsense in 1863 and published it in 1864 is perfectly ridiculous. End quote. So McClellan formally entered politics in October of 1863 when he endorsed the Democratic candidate for governor of Pennsylvania. Now, the candidate he endorsed had been openly critical of the administration's conduct of the war, so the endorsement made his chances of getting a new command uh, even much less likely. By the end of the year, McClellan was beginning to get quite a bit of attention as a potential presidential nominee. Uh, the Democrats were making some political gains with the electorate by uh, attacking the administration's war-related liberty infringements, particularly relating to newspapers that had been temporarily shut down by the government for criticizing the conduct of the war. But the, the Democratic Party was divided uh, between the ardently anti-war copperheads and the pro-union wing that still supported the war. McClellan unquestionably fell within the latter category. He described continued prosecution of the war as just and righteous, so long as its purpose is to crush rebellion and save our nation from the infinite evils of dismemberment. But he was still viewed as the candidate that the party could rally around. Now, his entry into politics caused increased War Department surveillance, though there is no evidence that the Russians were involved. And his criticism led to some uh, retaliation from the administration, especially Edwin Stanton. Stanton refused to give commands to any of McClellan's uh, old associates, and he even tried to get rid of the West Point staff who had invited McClellan to speak. But even so, at that point, McClellan was still technically in the army, and the new general-in-chief, Ulysses Grant, viewed him uh, in his current state as a, as a wasted asset. Grant met with Lincoln in July of 1864 and proposed returning Mack to field command in the Army of the Potomac, with Grant you know, calling the shots up top. Or, or giving McClellan a command in the Shenandoah Valley, or putting him in charge of training a new army in Washington. Lincoln reportedly was uh, open to letting Grant use McClellan as long as Mac would agree to stay out of politics. By Grant's telling, uh, McClellan was approached but would not agree. Though uh, around the same time, McClellan wrote that it was, quote, the wish of my heart to command the Army of the Potomac in one more great campaign, end quote. But either way, once again, nothing came of it. So going into the Democratic Convention, McClellan made clear that he, would, uh, he was not going to run on a peace platform, though he did take the position that reunion was the only non-negotiable term. So he was flexible on emancipation. If the party adopted a peace-at-all-cost platform, though, uh, he would refuse the nomination. He didn't attend the convention, instead opting to have his interests represented by uh, the conservative Democrats from New York. He ended up earning the uh, nomination on the first ballot, but when it came to the party platform, his surrogates let him down. Um, the Copperheads, who were led by Clement Vallandigham, gained a majority on the platform committee and included what they called a war failure resolution in the official party platform. It read, quote, Justice, humanity, liberty, and the public welfare demand that immediate efforts be made for cessation of hostilities with a view to an ultimate convention of the states or other peaceable means to the end that at the earliest practical moment, peace may be restored on the basis of the Federal Union of States. End quote. Mac's supporters tried to defeat the resolution, but the Copperheads uh, threatened to walk out of the convention 
and they'd run their own candidate. So the resolution remained on the platform. Mack openly disavowed the war failure resolution, but it stuck to him. He reaffirmed in his acceptance letter that, that reunion was a mandatory condition for peace, writing, quote, I could not look in the face of my gallant comrades of the Army and Navy who have survived so many bloody battles and tell that their labors and the sacrifice of so many of our slain and wounded brethren had been in vain, end quote. But it didn't matter. He was still viewed as the peace candidate. And that might not have hurt him had the military situation not changed. Uh, with the brutally high casualties sustained in the Overland campaign, public support for the war was waning. Lincoln expected to lose the election, and in August he issued a memo to the cabinet stating, quote, This morning, as for some days past, it seems exceedingly probable that this administration will not be reelected. Then it will be my duty to so cooperate with the president-elect as to save the union between the election and inauguration, as he will have secured his election on such grounds that he cannot possibly save it afterwards, end quote. Now, even with support waning, McClellan remained steadfast that he would not end the war without reunion. But the public perception, North and South, remained that his election would mean an end to the war. He later wrote, quote, Of course, I can't tell what the secesh expected to be the result of my election, but if they expected to gain their independence from me, they would have been woefully mistaken, end quote. Uh, but with Sherman taking Atlanta and Sheridan's defeat of Jubal early in the fall, support for the war and the administration picked back up leading into the election. Uh, the Republican strategy in the campaign was to hang the Democratic Party platform around Mack's neck and tie him to the Copperheads. And it worked brilliantly. Even with the Army, even the Army of the Potomac that had loved him not long before and took his side in the friction with the administration, McClellan was viewed as ready to abandon the war without victory. One officer summed it up, quote, The former friends of George McClellan have abandoned him because he has got in such bad company. On Election Day, Lincoln scored a landslide victory, taking the Electoral College 212 to 21, losing only Kentucky, Delaware, and New Jersey. A full 78% of the soldier vote went to Lincoln, due to both the perception that Mack intended to end the war without victory, and to the informal endorsement of Lincoln by the popular Ulysses Grant. Uh, McClellan wasn't too broken up about the defeat, though. He, he wrote shortly after, quote, For my country's sake, I deplore the result, but the people have decided with their eyes wide open, and I feel that a great weight is removed from my mind, end quote. After the election, McClellan, concerned about uh, the continuing surveillance and retaliation by the government, decided to leave the country. And he ended up touring, touring Europe for three and a half years with Ellen, and they generally were warmly received. She wrote of their stop-off in London, the feeling for the general in England is enthusiastic. They look upon him as the American general. He was able to meet numerous dignitaries while in Europe, but the one he seemed most impressed with was uh, Prussian chief of the general staff, uh, Helmut von Moltke. And this is the elder von Moltke, uh, who would guide Prussian armies to victories um, not long after in the Austro-Prussian and Franco-Prussian wars. Von Molka reportedly complimented McClellan on his strategy on the peninsula and agreed that the campaign would have succeeded with proper War Department support, though uh, Moltke probably arrived at that opinion from reading McClellan's own published report. When the war came to an end in 1865, McClellan was in Switzerland. He wrote upon hearing of Lee's surrender, quote, I trust that since we have completely vindicated our national strength and military honor by the entire defeat and ruin of our late enemies, 
our people will pursue a magnanimous and merciful course towards a fallen foe, one that will tend to soften the bitter feelings inevitably caused by a long and earnest war. End quote. Now, that seemed to be the direction things were headed, too, but all that changed when John Wilkes Booth took it upon himself to murder the man who had pledged to welcome the South back into the Union with open arms. Uh, McClellan recorded his reaction to Lincoln's assassination. Quote, How strange it is that the military death of the rebellion should have been followed with such tragic quickness by the atrocious murder of Mr. Lincoln. Now I cannot but forget all that had been unpleasant between us and remember only the brightest parts of our intercourse. End quote. He returned to the States in September 1868 and was welcomed back enthusiastically by Northern Democrats. Over the next few years, he supported himself by taking on occasional engineering and consulting work and uh, writing numerous articles on military organizations and uh, analyzing the European wars. And he also spent time sporadically drafting his memoirs and participating occasionally in democratic political events. And then in September 1877, he unexpectedly received the Democratic nomination for governor of New Jersey. He hadn't sought the nomination or even really considered it, but the party at its convention couldn't come to a, a consensus on a candidate. And so when one delegate uh, submitted McClellan's name, they all quickly got behind him. The New York Herald reported, The applause was so deafening that it was useless to name any other candidate for several minutes. The effect was electrical. Unquote. The New Jersey voters enthusiastically elected McClellan to a three-year term, and he served as a successful popular governor. He focused on fiscal discipline and reducing the state debt while in office, and earned a reputation for running a government uh, which was as devoid of partisanship as possible. After completing his term, he took another vacation to Europe. Uh, while away, he had many of his belongings, including the only draft of the memoir that he had been working on for several years, stored in a warehouse. The warehouse burned down, and the draft was lost. Uh, he would do some limited rewriting, but for the most part, the memoir was lost to history. In 1885, he attended a commemoration of the Battle of Antietam and was asked to give a, a speech to the former soldiers uh, from both armies that were gathered there. Now, he spoke respectfully of, of the deceased General Lee and the bravery of the soldiers on both sides, which he described as, quote, already a part of the common heritage of glory of all the people of America, end quote. A reporter on the scene noted that both the northern and southern former soldiers cheered enthusiastically for Little Mac and said of the speech, quote, General McClellan's oration was a scholarly production and was delivered with an ease and grace of manner and speech that were cordially recognized. He was awarded several rousing cheers at the close, end quote. And then in October 1885, only a few months after the Antietam gathering, McClellan was writing an article on the Maryland campaign when he started feeling chest pains. His condition deteriorated rapidly, and the next day, October 29th, 1885, he died at 58 years old. His death made national headlines and led to renewed debate over his war record. As noted by the New York Post, quote, Probably no soldier who did so little fighting has ever had his qualities as a commander so minutely, and we may add, so fiercely discussed. End quote. And the Times concluded, quote, his error was in expecting and requiring a degree of perfection in preparation and of absolute safeguard against the possibility of failure, end quote. And the New York World noted that uh, taking McClellan's side implicitly involved criticism of the martyred Lincoln. And as a result, the pro-McClellan paper held, quote, 
No soldier was ever more unjustly dealt with or more harshly, cruelly, and unfairly criticized. End quote. A posthumous memoir was published by McClellan's literary executor, William C. Prime, not long after his death. And he really didn't do the deceased to general any favors. Due to the destruction of McClellan's draft, Prime prepared the majority of the memoir using accounts that McClellan had written during the war. As a result, the memoir appeared to rely on, on stale or disproven information without the benefit of you know, 20 years of analysis and records review, including Confederate records. McClellan was accused of willfully ignoring or refusing to believe new information in an effort to aggrandize himself. And his reputation with the public took a hit as a result. Among historians, McClellan is viewed uh, generally as a failure. Uh, Alan Axelrod sums up the majority position like this, quote, A talented, earnest, humane officer, McClellan, evaluated in terms of the results he produced and did not produce, was the single most notable failure among the Union high command, end quote. But I think that assessment doesn't maybe give him enough credit for the important contributions that he, he did make in uh, building and training and organizing the Army of the Potomac. Uh, during the war, his opponents recognized both his strengths and his weaknesses. Uh, James Longstreet, for instance, wrote that McClellan, quote, was a very accomplished soldier and a very able engineer, but hardly equal to the position of a field marshal as a military chieftain. He organized the Army of the Potomac cleverly, but did not handle it skillfully in actual battle, end quote. And his men loved and respected him and appreciated the great service he did in preparing them for the fight, though ultimately... Most came to realize that he was just not the man to actually lead them into that fight. Uh, for the last word on General George B. McClellan, we'll turn to James Rustling. Now, Rustling was a lawyer from New Jersey who volunteered and worked his way up to captain in the New Jersey Volunteers. He served under McClellan in the Army of the Potomac. And in his memoir, Men and Things I Saw in Civil War Days, Rustling concluded of uh, his former commander, quote, he knew all West Point could teach him, and indeed was adept in all branches of the military profession, except the last and most important one of all, and that is how to fight and conquer. As an organizer and drill master and disciplinarian, we did not produce McClellan's equal during the war, but there he seems to have ended. Well, that's going to do it for our look at General George B. McClellan. I hope you enjoyed it. We got something good in store for our next episode that I'm really excited about. So I hope you'll join us for that one too. Until then, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.